You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is um, Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It's 7.36 p.m. Pacific time on December 3rd, uh, 2020. Um, I'm doing a retreat um, on the 12th and 13th uh, around the meditation and attachment for addiction approach. And uh, I talked about the politics of addiction and addiction treatment last week. And I thought that I would talk about the, the uh, underlying condition of addiction and, and, and how it relates to practice. And that we could do some meditation around that as well. Um, we are uh, um, meditation uh, because this is meditation and attachment uh, the frame the way that I frame these things tends to be involved in that and so when you begin to look at what is the nature of addiction what you're pointed to is that uh, addiction uh, falls heavily in, in uh, a dismissing attachment strategy or in a disorganized attachment strategy that's avoidant in its nature. So um, in just touching briefly on the, the spectrum of attachment, secure attachment uh, is when the, the parenting or the care that you received as a child is good enough. And then we as uh, children adapt to uh, environments where the care uh, was uh, not optimal or even good enough. The dismissing adult was a child who was neglected or rejected as a child. The preoccupied adult was one where the care was intermittent, sometimes good enough, uh, sometimes neglected, sometimes not good enough. And the disorganized child typically grows up in a rather adverse environment where uh, some kind of uh, profound neglect or abuse happened. Often uh, sexual abuse is associated with that category. When you look at the distribution of addiction across the attachment strategies, secure people have a very low rate of addiction, uh, negligible rate of addiction. Dismissing people, 30% of dismissing adults have uh, substance or process addictions. Uh, again, with uh, preoccupied people, it's a very low incidence of addiction with that group. And in the fearful avoidant or the disorganized uh, attachment strategy with a, a uh, uh, avoidant or dismissing component, 70% of that group is has substance or process, process addictions. So to have a correlation of insecure and disorganized attachment with these high levels of addiction, then we begin to look at what is the function of addiction in that attachment system and how, if you address that attachment system, that will affect the nature of the addiction process. Dismissing people avoid uh, intimate connection. That's the, the way that they learn to regulate their experience. They also learn to suppress awareness of their emotions. 
the main way to uh, adequately regulate your emotions is by being in relationship to someone else. So what you're looking for in interpersonal relationships, the first thing to look at is whether or not you can emotionally co-regulate with somebody else. What I mean by co-regulate is that you have an emotionally regulating effect on them and they have an emotionally regulating effect on you. In people who avoid intimacy in that way, they're also avoiding the, the, the gold standard, if you will, of emotional regulation capacity in life. Why this is such an important thing is that we need to be able to explore to have meaning. So we need to be able to come and go from our intimate connections and explore the world in a way that provides meaning to us. Um, you cannot derive sufficient meaning from being in a relationship that that, that would produce a sense of satisfaction uh, if, if it doesn't uh, support and uh, allow you to pursue things that are meaningful to you. So what you're really looking for in a secure collaborative relationship is somebody who's your biggest booster for you to go out and explore and achieve uh, and succeed in things that have real meaning to you and that you do the same for them and that you have the capacity to regulate each other, but also the capacity to regulate yourself when you're doing your solo exploration or when your uh, people are out pursuing their own explorations. Uh, you have to be able to separate from them and then be able to come back together. One of the, the things that makes relationships so dynamic is, is that the person who comes back from their exploration is willing to share it with you and that you are in, uh, delighted to have that experience. Then you go out because you can't wait to discover these new things and then you come back because you can't wait to share them with the, the person that you're connected to or the group of people. So in the, in the Dunbar numbers or the Dunbar framework for this, if you wanna have an A, you have an A. Uh, if you wanna have a B, you have some Bs and that group of As and Bs support you in your exploration and you come back and then support that group in their exploration. And it's a constant dynamic exchange of what you're finding out. Uh, and that that's what makes it so dynamic and also so stable because you're willing to support the other people because they support you. If you grow up in an environment where you become uh, avoidant of that, it's because the experience in that early time in your life was so painful that you want to avoid the pain of it. So if you imagine a, a child who's profoundly neglected and that each time they bring their discoveries of their exploration to their caregivers and they're rejected, they begin to associate the sharing of the discovery of the meaningfulness of life with rejection, which is very painful. And they don't uh, get much in terms of support because the neglect is so profound. Um, when you are born, of course, you're entirely dependent on your uh, caregivers for survival. Um, so the first uh, five months, five to eight months of life, you really don't differentiate between people as your brain develops. When we're born, we're born with an intact brainstem. So the instinctual way of being is online, a partially formed right brain enough to begin to collect 
um, procedural learning and not much in the way of a left brain. The right brain develops first, so you begin to take in the procedures of being alive and what you have to do to get your needs met. Um, and uh, between five and eight months or say, it develops enough that you can begin uh, to uh, uh, create the attachment hierarchy uh, that you have. We all carry with us an attachment hierarchy, people we prefer, uh, people we don't prefer. You'll notice in infants that anybody can hold an infant in the first months of life, but at a certain age, they begin to have a preference for who they who holds them, and they have a preference for who they can hold in their visual field. So often, in once the stranger anxiety takes over, you can hold an infant as long as they're looking at their caregiver. But as soon as they can't see their caregiver anymore, they get distressed. So you could hold the baby in your lap and they could be looking out at their caregiver and be fine. But if you turn them around to look at you, they'd be quite upset by that. Um, <clears throat> at about 10 months of age, the attachment strategy is embedded uh, well enough that we can evaluate it, what it is. And by the time you're two or three years old, it's pretty well fixed. Um, you'll... Um, Maybe if you've had kids or, or recently been around them or enough that you remember the ages of this, uh, children begin to um, move on their own pretty freely around a year old or so. They, they get up on two and then they're able to, to learn to balance. Uh, and so, um, you know, first they're in the blob stage you put them down and come back two hours later and they've moved about six inches from where you put them down. And then they they do a million little baby crunches and they're able to roll themselves over. They do a million little baby push-ups and leg lifts. They're able to slide themselves across the floor. Even at, at creep in the creeping stage, they can't get that far. And then they get up on all fours and they can crawl and then and, and, uh, They'll crawl to the edge and look back and see that you're paying attention to them. And, and the more attention, the more reassurance that you give them that you'll be, you'll be there when they get back, the freer they are to explore. And the less that you do that, the more inhibited they are about exploring. And then they'll pull themselves up on two and then they'll, they'll support themselves on two as they're learning balance. And then as soon as they get to that sweet spot where they can be up on two legs, they have the strength to hold themselves and they have the capacity to balance, then they start to, to explore widely. We all went through that process. Uh, if you have a sensitive enough caregiver who pays attention to that and encourages you, you go and you come back, you go and you come back, you go and you come back. People who uh, develop an avoidance to that don't end up coming back after a while. They go and they come back and the caregiver is not responsive to their coming back. They're not responsive to what they've discovered. They're not encouraging. And so the child learns that in order to avoid humiliation, you don't want to share what you've discovered. And you also learn that there's nothing to come back to. There's no support. There's no encouragement. And so you begin these, these completely isolated solo explorations that don't include the piece of sharing what you've discovered. And this is one of the fundamental pieces of 
avoidant attachment, but it's also one of the central pieces around addiction. You don't rely on other people. You don't turn to them for support or encouragement, and you don't turn to them for emotional regulation. If you want to explore, what you have to be willing to do is risk uh, emotional upset to really go for things. And uh, because the constant neglect and the constant rejection is so painful, the, the main regulation, emotional regulation strategy that dismissing people use is the suppression of the awareness of their emotions. It doesn't mean that they don't have emotions. It doesn't mean that they don't suffer afflictive emotions. It simply means that they suppress conscious awareness of them so that the emotions operate unconsciously and affect the process of um, deciding um, what the intention and action is going to be and also how they respond to the outcome. But most of that process is kept unconscious so that uh, the experience in, in the present moment is often um, cognitive or logical, not emotional. <sighs> In the studies of um, young children looking at their attachment strategies, the dismissing child often looks like the cool cucumber, the one that's the most collected, the most functional. Um, but if you did an EEG examination of them, they would be the ones that were in the most pain. Um, one of the problems that they have is that when they become emotionally dysregulated, since they don't clue themselves into the emotional regulation, the emotional upset, they don't seek help in regulating it. And then they generate thoughts that often are afflictive as a way of um, regulating their experience. So derogating anger, this hard put down anger or this uh, process of idealizing. Um, the idealization tends to be of people who are outside of the relationship or things. They get very um, attached to things and inanimate things uh, as a way of boosting their, their sense of well-being. What happens when you're extremely emotionally distressed and you have no awareness that you're extremely emotionally distressed and that you don't turn to other people to help you regulate? You turn to substances and processes to regulate that experience. You may not be aware that that's what you're doing, but in the beginning, um, it's organized around different kinds of processes often um, you know, the usuals, sex, gambling, danger, um, uh, high social achievement, uh, substances, of course. In the beginning, um, most people find substances to be quite useful. They kill the pain uh, of the distress. They, they create a sense of euphoria. <clears throat> This can also be true uh, of the process addiction. Sex addiction in particular activates the oxytocin reward system that comes from physical touch. And so the, the main purpose of the, the sexual activity is not sexual gratification so much as is it's, it's meant to be emotionally regulating and uh, the activation of the oxytocin system helps with that. 
you, you notice that in people who are addicted to substances or processes, uh, there's two main directions that they go. And one is the dopamine, people who are looking for the up, the lift out of the depression, the, the excitement piece, and then the people who are after the endorphins, which is more like the opiate painkilling coming down experience. So how do you address uh, intense anxiety, that up fearful activity, you drug it and come into a place of ease. If there, there wasn't a high level of, um, uh, um, the word isn't coming, um, tolerance, if there wasn't this feedback loop that created tolerance to the substances, it probably would work much better. Um, for instance, uh, alcohol increases the dopamine level about 120% in the brain. So you drink alcohol and the, the benefit that you get from it is this dopamine high, this dopamine blast. Cocaine increases the dopamine by about 300%. Um, and then uh, crystal methamphetamine, for instance, increases it about 1200%. The body-mind is always trying to come into some kind of balance, some kind of resolution around keeping the system in, 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 in the, the saturation levels that are appropriate for optimum functioning. And so when you artificially increase the dopamine levels, the, the brain um, prunes the receptors. So then that one drink that used to give you that dopamine blast doesn't work anymore because the, the, the brain is compensated for it. Then you need two drinks and then the brain compensates for that. And then you need three drinks or four drinks. And at a certain point, you have to take a dose that's so high that the, the body mind, the body isn't capable of processing it. And so then you begin to have these health consequences it is also uh, the doses get so high that it affects your cognitive ability. And then you begin to have these outside consequences that come from being impaired by the, the use of the substances. So there's a, a, a spike, a, a spiral into uh, consequences that typically comes because you develop a tolerance to the substances and you have to keep increasing the doses to get the same effect. This is also true of uh, opiates. Um, I work with a number of people and um, uh, they, at the end of their uh, addiction, they were taking um, doses of uh, uh, opiates that would uh, kill me in 10 minutes if I took that dose because they were so, I mean, just amazing that they're still alive. The doses were so high. And, and in, in our current climate, most of these people are taking pharmaceutical uh, uh, opioids, which are prescribed. And so they, they know in the, in the medical system that we have that, uh, that you develop these tolerances, that you develop them fast, and they just keep upping the doses. One of the principal causes of the OD problem that we have is that people go into rehab, they're in rehab for two or three months, the brain regrows these receptors, and then they go out and they return to a dose that was similar to the one that they were on, which has now become lethal because the biology of the body has changed and they OD and die taking a dose that was 
not even as high as uh, what they were taking at the end of their last uh, run. The process addictions also affect these different uh, primary reward mechanisms. There's the dopamine uh, endorphins and the uh, oxytocin. If you cannot rely on somebody else to emotionally regulate you and you do not share the experiences that you have and that you live in this detached and uh, place where you simply avoid intimacy with everyone else because you are so frightened of uh, uh, the terrible, terrible sadness of the neglect and the, 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 the anger and pain around the rejection that you felt. Uh, and that this is the constant experience of your internal life, then you need some way that's outside of yourself that will help you manage this on your own. So in some sense, the avoidance strategy is to avoid intimate relationships with other people that would be useful in regulating your emotion and then having to develop a system to regulate the emotion, which is not dependent on other people. And so that's the main uh, uh, issue with addiction is how do you change your mind about this enough that you're willing to begin to depend on other people and then put the time, energy and resources into creating a social network around yourself that will take on the task of emotionally regulating you, supporting you and encouraging you to explore what's meaningful uh, and then being willing to share that experience with other people, overcoming the initial reluctance to do so because of, of the fearfulness around being rejected by um, uh, the rejection uh, experience is really the, the feeling that if you're uh, authentic in and share your experience as you have it, that you'll be abandoned in the same way that you were in childhood. So that's the um, dismissing conundrum. The disorganized conundrum is a little bit different because uh, most of the time disorganization happens because of some kind of trauma or some kind of abuse. Whereas the defensive system of the avoidant person is that they're better than everybody else and nobody else is actually capable of meeting their needs. Um, you have to change your mind about that. The disorganized person is frightened that they'll be harmed or killed by those kinds of authentic experiences. Uh, that's a very different psychology that if you're so frightened that you're going to be re-traumatized or re-abused or hurt or killed uh, by letting your guard down in a relationship, it's, it's much harder to get yourself to do that. And fearfully avoidant people do not use the same uh, emotional suppression strategies that the dismissing people do. So in, their experience is also different. Um, when we talk about disorganization, of course, we're talking about the disorganization of the attachment mechanism. Uh, dismissing people are very predictable in the way that they react. And so you can learn how to be in relationship with them 
learn how to communicate to them so that um, those kinds of exchanges are easier. And because dismissing people are good explorers, they tend to pursue secondary goals rather than primary goals. So what that means is that a primary goal is where you derive the meaningfulness out, out of the activity itself. And the secondary goal is where you um, derive the, the time, energy, or resources that are necessary to pursue a goal. Dismissing people tend to be very secondarily organized. They like high social value. They like a, they like a lot of remuneration, um, usually in those areas. Disorganized people like to withdraw. They're, they have a complete experience of their emotions, but they have not much agency in being able to regulate their own emotions. And because they don't want to rely on other people to help them, because they're frightened that the other people will exploit them or hurt them, they tend to withdraw and attempt to emotionally regulate in isolation. Uh, dismissing people don't like to be isolated. They like to be uh, in community. They just aren't uh, intimate. Disorganized people, fearfully avoidant people, socially isolate. So if you've ever been around the 12-step the rooms, uh, they, they make a big deal about social isolation as, a, as the principal cause of relapse. Uh, what happens is you withdraw from the potential of other people helping you to emotionally regulate, you're unable to regulate yourself. And so then you, you reach for the substances or processes outside of yourself to help you come back into emotional balance. And so it is more difficult to change the mind of a disorganized or a fearful avoidant person than it is to change the mind of a purely dismissing person. Dismissing person can explore, they can evaluate uh, the outcomes of that exploration. If they see that there's value in it, they often will take it up as a better way of being in the world, a better way of getting what they want. Whereas with a fearful avoidant person, the, uh, the capacity to risk um, changing and put themselves in harm is so daunting that often they're unable to do so. This is uh, talking then about the mentalizing piece. Mentalizing is the capacity to take in the experience of the present moment, make sense out of it, form an intention and take an action in response to what you perceive the present moment to be. And uh, there's a scale, it's called the reflective function scale, and we can test it. And the range is between one and nine. It's an exponential scale, which means that somebody who mentalizes at a two mentalizes at twice the capacity of a one, somebody at a three at four times the capacity, and so on. Um, Secure people right out of the box with no intervention tend to, to mentalize at the, in the six to nine range. Uh, dismissing people tend to um, mentalize in the four to five range. So they can also see clearer and see the advantages of doing, uh, changing the way that they operate in the world uh, because it's to their advantage. Um, preoccupied people in the uh, three to four range and 
Disorganized people typically mentalize in a capacity that's below three. So you're looking at uh, somebody also who cannot make sense of things too easily, cannot see or think clearly about the advantages and disadvantages and, and has a hard time discerning what a real threat is and what a, a, an unreal threat is. So it's harder for them to, to, uh, to change their perception. Uh, another way to put that is that there's more to do. But because they're so used to socially isolating and disconnecting from people, and because they're, they're not able to show up with any kind of uh, uh, reliability, they tend also not to be in, not have securely functioning people or people who function better available to them to help them. And so they have built into their experience of other people, uh, associations mainly with people who are also as impaired as they are, which creates a very different worldview than uh, people who are more organized uh, do. Secure people are happy to be in relationship with people who can show up and they don't really have relationships with people that don't show up because they're used to a world where everyone shows up and everyone's capable. And so that's the minimum entry for a relationship, a minimum entry ticket for a relationship with the, the secure ride. Um, dismissing people can show up they just don't uh, collaborate and they're not reciprocal. Uh, secure relationships are both uh, reciprocal and collaborative. So if you're unwilling to do that, you're also typically not in a relationship with a secure person. Preoccupied people, um, the thing that's the dominant experience for them is proximity. And so they're willing to trade proximity for their exploration. So they'll be encouraging and supporting of a dismissing person's uh, exploration and not need to explore themselves as long as they have proximity. And so that's a good bargain for them. Dismissing people don't mind being in relationship to other fearful avoidant people because as long as you show up and you're willing to idealize the dismissing person, they're happy to have you, but preoccupied people and fearful avoiding people don't typically form relationships because the preoccupied person needs constant proximity and the fearful avoiding person needs to be isolated to feel safe. So that doesn't work. Secure people don't do uh, unreliable relationships and because the fearful avoiding person needs to, to at a, the drop of a hat become isolated uh, you have uh, not much uh, connection there between them. So you have people who don't function very well in relationship with other people who don't function very well, which creates a kind of modeling around not functioning very well and being extremely emotionally dysregulated, which leads to the uh, experience of substances or process addictions. Is that all making sense in terms of the constellation of what uh, the underlying cause of addiction is? If this is the case then, if you don't learn different skills to 
uh, operate in the world, you have a choice of either reducing your exploration and your contacts with the world to the point that you're never triggered into emotional dysregulation, which in itself is quite painful. Um, or you have to begin to learn different skills in order to function better so that you can, can, you can find the meaningfulness that you need to find through exploring and you can be in relationship with people who will be emotionally regulating and supportive and encouraging of your exploration. So this is the main thing. Dismissing people don't have to do that much to get there. And so uh, if you're organized and you have a dismissing strategy and you have addiction with it, you can uh, change those things uh, pretty swiftly and move into a place where you can shift to uh, relationships that are supportive and regulating and out of strategies that are supportive of the avoidant way of being in the world. And so what you notice is that that group of people does very well with uh, treatment. The fearful avoidant group is um, has much, much more to do in terms of repairing all of those systems. And so uh, that's a, a harder um, task, both for the person and for the people that are supporting them and doing that. Most of the time, if you come from a family system that produces disorganized attachment, the family system isn't going to be of much help in terms of supporting you and recovering from that. And so you need to be able to find people uh, who can do that. We live uh, now in a particularly challenging time with the COVID period uh, continuing as it is because uh, the the social isolation demands of COVID uh, exacerbate the distress of the disorganized attachment. Um, so what you're seeing now in, in the US is a, oh, and I'm gonna guess in other places, although don't not aware of the stats, uh, a huge increase in uh, addiction rates and a huge increase in overdoses and um, this, of course, is not really in the news much because the, the COVID period is dominating, is dominated by the news around uh, COVID. So when we begin to do the attachment work, what we're beginning to do is change the way in which people view the needs of attachment. So there's some education piece around that. You really do, if you have addiction, need to change your mind about forming uh, intimate social networks that support you. If you don't explore because the disappointment of exploring has become too great, then you need to change your mind about that and also begin to find a way to pursue things that actually have meaning. You need to be able to recognize who can be supportive and reliable to be in relationship to you need to begin to develop those relationships and move into more stable and uh, supporting relationships away from uh, more volatile relationships. One of the things that people say in moving from disorganized or insecure attachment towards secure attachment is that uh, securely attached people are boring because the ups and downs are missing. Um, 
what's it like to go out to dinner with somebody and worry for hours or days before you get there that they'll show up or not. And then when they walk through the door, there's this massive blast of dopamine that comes from seeing them and knowing that they've actually showed up for you. Whereas if somebody's totally reliable and you don't even have to think about whether they'll be there or not, they just always show up, you're missing that big blast of dopamine. And so it may feel like the relationship isn't uh, exciting or that they're not passionate about you or not really connected to you. But what you really want to look for is that somebody's showing up reliably and that they're a good source of support and encouragement and that they're interested in you uh, exploring and discovering things that have meaning. And they're interested in you relaying to them what you found out and that that becomes the source of excitement in uh, the relationship. That becomes the source of meaning in the relationship. So part of this is experiential and part of this is opening to the idea that that's the possibility there. So then we need to begin to train uh, the capacity to mentalize, the capacity to regulate emotions, and the, to change our minds about uh, being willing to be in relationship. And often what we need to do is change our our narrative about the kind of life that we had. It's quite uh, normal to hear uh, highly dismissing people describe their childhoods as absolutely ideal, absolutely perfect. And yet you wonder why they're then they need to take 80 milligrams of oxycodone every day just to get through. Um, there's a kind of um, idealizing in fearful avoidant people, but they, they often describe the conditions that they grew up with in a way that's reflective of what those conditions actually were, but they accept them as normal and not uh, difficult. Uh, and uh, so that process needs to happen. So there, uh, I just wanted to get uh, that um, described uh, to under, understand it. It helps have, it helps, I think, um, open the possibility of a window of compassion for people that are struggling with addictions to see it as a consequence of conditioning that began um, early, that really began at the very beginning before they had any agency at all. Um, you see uh, in the most extreme cases, uh, uh, children in mid-childhood uh, developing addiction. Um, oftentimes it, it uh, manifests in adolescence. Uh, there is also a group where it comes later, so uh, college or in the 30s. Um, somebody who began their addictive strategies in childhood uh, they tend to bottom out in their teen years. So if you're seeing an adolescent who's having extreme addiction issues, it's likely um, 10 years into that addiction that they are at 15 or 16 or 17. So imagine how severe the conditions of their childhood must have been that that was the outcome and that they would be hitting bottom in, in those uh, early years of adolescence. Most of the time, as the cognitive mind begins to develop and people are 
moving toward uh, finding relationships outside of the home. They uh, need to use to regulate those experiences and they tend to bottom out in their 20s, mid 20s or so. And then the people who start in college or in their 30s tend to bottom out in their, their 50s. So you see these different kinds of patterns which are also reflective of the conditions that they faced. But understand the cognitive mind begins to develop in puberty, the, the capacity to reflect backwards and to see clearly and to, to actually value the things in an, in an accurate way don't really become available to a person until they're in their earlier mid-20s. So how are you going to be able to reflect back on the uh, conditions that you faced and the, 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 uh, the actions that you took to deal with them? Um, particularly if the conditions are so bad that you have to medicate yourself to come out of that pain to survive when you can't reflect on it until 10 years after you're into it or 15 years after you're into it. So I describe it in this way in, in, a, in, a, in the sense that that will open up this capacity for compassion when dealing with somebody who has addiction or even in dealing with your own addiction if you have it that this, this open-hearted, kind place, this uh, willingness to turn toward that suffering and not away from it, uh, and to then help support uh, what needs to happen for a person so that they can come out of that. And if you're dealing with a disorganized person, often they're very sweet and you'd love them to be able to be more reliable than they are but really understanding that they don't have the internal structure to be reliable. And so that the support is given, uh, you give the support that you feel comfortable giving and you don't overextend to it, uh, overextend so you don't burn out so that you can actually be present for the, the length of time that it's going to take that person to develop all of these skills that they, are, that they have deficits in so that they'll then be able to function in a way that allows them to enter into these, the kinds of relationships that will support them. Is that all making sense? We often hear about tough love and I, I, and I, and I really want to say that it doesn't work and that if you can avoid doing it, you should because it actually is often uh, harmful to the person that it's happening. But it, if, it, if it's coming in this codependent place where you're you're not holding reasonable boundaries and then you get burnt out from that and then you, you hold these rigid, severe boundaries in response to that uh, and that you need to do that to take care of yourself, understand that that's what you're doing. You're taking care of yourself and you're not actually taking care of the other person. And that we want to be in this place of compassion where we can provide uh, the care, the time, energy and resources that we, we have available, not giving something that you don't have, but what you have available and so that you can stay open uh, to this process of healing, which for people that, uh, for most of the people that have uh, addiction is gonna be quite uh, uh, long and involved and require a lot. So uh, if you can give only what, what you have to give so that you don't burn out, you can be present for the long haul that it's going to be, and then uh, groups of people can uh, provide all of the support that needs to happen rather than just uh, you 
uh, burning yourself out on it. So let's do some meditation. I want to focus on uh, an aspect of developing mentalizing. So this is the basic, the first level of mentalizing is to monitor uh, spont spontaneous activations. Um, there's two poles here. One is spontaneous and the other is monitoring or control. If you get too far into the spontaneous side, you get pulled up into thinking and you lose the meditation. If you get pulled too far into the monitoring and controlled side, you shut down the spontaneity and then there's no activations. So we want to be in this place of balance where we're able to continuously monitor a spontaneous flow of activations, not get pulled into the activations and lose monitoring but not become so controlling in the monitoring that we shut down the spontaneous activations of sensory experience. Um, is that clear? And we'll work mainly in auditory space because that's one of the easier places to focus. So how did that go? Good? <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> There's a little bit of static on your uh, uh, audio. So better to keep it, keep it muted unless you wanted to say something. <sighs> All right. Uh, George? Yeah. When I was doing therapy with a certain therapist a couple of years ago, and I asked her, well, what do you think my problem is? Or she would say that uh, you've got attachment trauma, and disorganized attachment and developmental trauma. Uh -huh. so that was her take on it. So it seems like people like us have some of the have the toughest work to do uh, because of and, and it goes back to my mother switching up. My mother was unpredictable. She could be very sweet and she could change and be very angry. And so that was the, the explanation of that. And so that was maybe the template of that how I see the world. Right. Explain some things, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of fearfulness usually in um, in disorganization, and so a lot of uh, effort is needed to be put into being able to manage the fearful and fear, fearfulness enough that you can allow yourself to be open in relationships, and then. Uh, if you pick well, of course, you're picking people who don't re-abuse you or re-reenact the experience that you had, and so that that opens up uh, the 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 um, process of being able to develop trust in other people, so that you then populate the people the world around you with people that support you, and then you have that secure base to begin to explore from. And so you can begin the process of enriching your life through pursuing things that have real meaning. Uh, and that's the process of, of it. 
but the attachment work now actually uh, with the program that we have is efficient in, in, in being able to change those underlying templates much faster than, uh, or if at all, if you could do it at all before. So I recommend that you might consider that. Oh, and also happy belated birthday. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, George, I have a question. Um, so do these categories overlap or you're either one or the other? If you're organized, you're one or the other. And if you're disorganized, they overlap. Say that again, I'm sorry, what? If you're organized, meaning that like you're sick. They're one or the other. And if you're disorganized, they overlap. Okay. But this is like a spectrum, right? It's not, it's not like a black or white. Are there any gray areas? If you're organized, there's no gray areas. And if you're disorganized, it's all gray. So you're saying that if you grow up with secure attachment, then you're just so well adjusted that you don't have any problems? No, that's not what I mean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> it's not the whole game. So secure attachment uh, means that you you have a, a coherent narrative. You, you're able to mentalize well, you're able to understand what's happening and you'll be able to make good choices out of the circumstances that are available to you. When you turn about four or five years old and your autobiographical memory comes online and you'll know this for yourself based on what your early memories are. So I have a, a couple of memories when I'm four, I get a, a, a more patchy memory system when I'm five and my real autobiographical memory came online when I was about six. That's when I remember things. So for instance, I remember saying to my mother, I really wish I'd been able to do kindergarten. And she said, what are you talking about? You did kindergarten. But she sent me to kindergarten when I was four and not five. So I don't remember it at all. I have a few memories of first grade and my continuous memory doesn't start until second grade. So you can figure that out for yourself. When autobiographical memory starts, what you begin to do is develop the database of what you can expect from relationships, which is the secondary piece. So you go to the playground, you present your attachment strategy, which is already in place. And then depending on how the relationship choices that you make go, then you develop this history of what to expect from other people, which is the development of what you expect from the world. And if it didn't go well, then you could have secure attachment and at the same time uh, not have much trust in the world because of the way what your experiences were like. And then the third piece is uh, even later when you go through puberty and your sexuality activates and you begin to seek intimate relationships that have a sexual component to them then uh, the conflict resolution strategies that you developed in your family come into play in, in that level of intimacy, which is the third level. So I often work with people who have secure attachment, but have uh, had 
adverse circumstances when they moved outside of the the immediate family into the world and and then uh, or are in relationships with other people where there's a lot of difficulty in resolving conflict in the relationship. And both of those need to be worked at uh, separately and in, in, in different ways. Then once you get all three of those fairly well worked out and resolved and you can function really well, then you still have the vicissitudes of, of the human condition. Good enough? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Go eat worms. <laughs> Someone else? The thing is, organized attachment, people do just about as well, secure, dismissing, or preoccupied. Disorganized people do much less well. And so if you happen to land in the disorganized category, uh, it really uh, can make a huge difference to the way that you experience life if you attend to this. Whereas with uh, more organized people, often it's it's fine tuning and, and, and a much higher degree of satisfaction, but it's it doesn't dramatically change the circumstances of your life the way that addressing disorganization does. So we're uh, out of time. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate the practice and um, we have a few things coming up. I'm reading my book this Saturday. I think it's at 2 p.m. Let me look. Yeah, it's 2 p.m. So this is a new book I've I've put out called The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect, which in, uh, on the surface is a memoir of 1979, New York and photographs and lyric prose po poem, poetry. The first piece I wrote uh, in, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s when I lived there. And the second piece I wrote reflecting backwards uh, from now and so really it is infused with uh, Buddhist uh, ideology and philosophy. And it's also a portrait of what uh, this uh, meditation practice can do and how it changes the circumstances of a life. So from that, that perspective of uh, Buddhist meditation, the, the third part of the book is, a, is an interesting reflection on how practices uh, change things. Um, I'll read, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the book and read. Um, I'm going to focus mainly on um, on the sections around uh, um, uh, the 1979 was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and so I'm going to focus around that. Um, on the 12th and 13th, I'm doing a weekend retreat on the meditation and attachment for addiction, which is one of the reasons I've been talking about that. Uh, so come to that if you're interested in that. It will cover the four modules of our program. Uh, it's a relapse prevention program and a, an addiction stabilization program, which we mean as a, as a uh, prelude to doing the attachment work. Since once you arrest the, um, the active addictions, then you need to do the underlying work of addressing the attachment injury so that you, can, you have good prospects for long-term recovery. I'm doing a retreat um, on um, 
the six-day retreat, it's a meta vipassana retreat, so three days of meta practice, three days of vipassana practice. It's on the 28th of December until the 2nd of January. We will be starting uh, a uh, level one class at the end of January. The level two class uh, is full so that uh, there, there's no possibility of registering for that. Um, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the teaching freely and I hope that you'll make a donation which helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Any amount is appreciated. Of course, if you're not resourced and can't make a donation, that's totally fine. The community will support your practice. There's a link for the um, donation uh, either on the website or uh, in the email you received about the class. Thank you for attending and we'll see you soon, I hope. I know.